Okay then, so in study six, we're going to look at what Paul says about the way of salvation. The way of salvation. And we're going to do it by asking three questions. If you like, by asking Paul three questions. And the questions are, why do I need to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And what does it mean to be saved? Why do I need to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And what does it mean to be saved? Well, Paul makes it crystal clear that each person does need to be saved or converted or born again or whatever your phrase choice is. But that to have a relationship with a holy God and be a member of his kingdom requires us to be without sin because God's standard is perfection which no one can achieve. Therefore, says Paul in Romans 3.23, and I quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, I quote, all have sinned, no, I beg your pardon, that's Romans, the Corinthians, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? All mankind, says Paul, is guilty of wrongdoing. In Romans 3 verse 10, he writes, and I quote, there is no one righteous, by which he means right with God, there is no one right with God, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. And further, Paul speaks of us all as being, and I'm quoting from Ephesians 2 verse 1, dead in your transgressions and sins, unquote. Now the dead obviously means dead to God. So we could read that as dead to God in your transgressions and sins. Or, as he puts it in Colossians 1.21, being, and I quote, alienated from God because of your evil behaviour. And he says in Galatians 3.22 that, and I quote, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. The whole world is a prisoner of sin. Now, hopefully, I've got most of those uh, references listed there on the outline, so if you want to just go through them again in your own uh, private times. They're there for you. So, continuing with why do I need to be saved, Paul traces the sinful human condition back to Adam. And in Romans, which will be cropping up quite a lot in this study, which won't surprise many of you, in Romans 5 and verse 12, we read, quote, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Just run that through again. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. In other words sin came into the world through Adam says Paul and death is the result of Adam sinning. And death is inevitable for all human beings because they're all born in sin and therefore do not live righteous lives. That's the logic, that's the reasoning. 
Now, Paul seems to forge a link between Adam's sin and the sin of mankind, meaning that all human beings have inherited a sinful nature from Adam since they are his descendants. So just as Adam and Eve rebelled against God by disobeying his commands, so does each one of us, so does each person by the way that they live their lives, with the result that all of us are alienated from God and stand condemned before him. Now, if you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter 5, looking specifically at verses 12 to 21. Romans 5, 12 to 21. And in this particular passage, we see that Paul compares Adam and Christ. He compares Adam and Christ. Because Adam disobeys God, he loses all the privileges he enjoyed, including close, intimate fellowship with God. So, Adam and therefore his descendants are now inclined to do evil, which is shown by the fact that each person sins against God. And they're inclined to do evil, and therefore they will die. But, and I love the word but in the Bible, because it means something's about to happen, something's about to change. But God's love And grace towards mankind is such that he sent Christ, his obedient and righteous suffering servant, that Isaiah talks a lot about in the four servant songs, to save us from our sins and make us righteous and holy in God's sight so our relationship with him could be restored. Now that's the main points that Paul's making in that passage there. Romans 5, 12 to 21. We've already touched on this, actually, in the last study, study 5, when we were looking at what Paul had to say about Jesus Christ. So as Paul puts it, let's look at verses 17 to 19, and I'm quoting, For if by the trespass of the one man, meaning Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more? will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, that's all of us, all his descendants if you like, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so you see how he's comparing Adam and Christ. Whereas through Adam comes sin, condemnation and death, through Christ comes righteousness 
justification and eternal life. Now, I guess that's the most famous passage in Paul's writings where he compares Adam and Christ, but he also does it again in 1 Corinthians 15. But this time, the context is the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, and then 47 and 49, we read these words, and I quote, For since death came through a man, again referring about to Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Okay, this time, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The first man, that's Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man, Christ, from heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. So through Adam, we're condemned to die, but through Christ, we can have eternal life. That's the central thrust of that. Now, Paul says that because of our sinful human nature inherited through Adam, we are, as he writes to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 3, and I quote, by nature, objects of wrath, meaning God's wrath. By nature, objects of God's wrath. Because we are born in sin. And God, who is holy, is justly angry with mankind because of their unholy sinfulness. Romans 1.18, and I quote, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men. Yet in spite of this, God is patient with mankind, not wanting them to suffer the consequences of his righteous anger, but rather to be, and I quote, justified by his blood, in other words, Christ's blood, and thus, quote, saved from God's wrath through him. You find that in Romans 5 and verse 9. Justified by his blood, saved from God's wrath through him. And Paul says that God, instead of, and I quote from Romans 9.22, instead of, quote, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Now, the objects of his wrath, obviously, are you and me, mankind. So he bore with great patience. So we're talking about God's love and his grace and his patience with mankind. And Paul gives himself as an example, an example of someone who's benefited from God's patience. And writing to Timothy in the first letter, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, and I'm quoting, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience 
as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So, Paul is trumpeting God's patience towards sinful mankind who are under his holy wrath. But he comes with a warning. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 because we're going to be looking at verse 5 also in a moment. And here we see that Paul warns that God's patience should not be trifled with as it is being shown for a specific purpose. So the patience has a purpose and that purpose is repentance, that men and women come to repentance. And I'm quoting from Romans 2 verse 4 now. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness, we could then insert, is intended to lead you towards what? Repentance. Do you show contempt? So in other words, you're not to trifle with God's patience. You're not got to think, going to think, oh well, it doesn't matter what I do then. You know, I'll just... God's going to be patient. God's going to be gracious with me. No, Paul says, that's not what it's about at all. You're not to mess about with God's patience. You don't trifle with it because it's given to draw you, to bring you, to lead you to repentance. And if such a response is not forthcoming, then we can expect two things to happen. First of all, we can expect to be held accountable for our sins. And secondly, we can expect to face God's righteous anger as it falls upon us in inevitable judgment. And that's where we come to verse 5 of Romans 2, which reads, quote, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. And he's an inclusive word there, includes mankind. And that also appears, you will find similar words in Ephesians 5, 6 and Colossians 3, 5 to 6. So what Paul's saying there, in other words, is God wants us to repent and be cleansed from our sins by the blood of Christ shed on the cross, whose sacrifice has appeased God's wrath. We heard about that this morning. Rather than having to face the consequences of ignoring God's gracious provision. And he says more about this when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 to 10, and says, and I quote, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we may live together with him. 
So God's purpose in us being created and alive was not that we should suffer his wrath. That wasn't what he wanted. We deserved that for our actions. What God wants is us to receive salvation and to have a relationship with him so we may live together with him. So therefore, we need to be saved, he's saying. Why do I need to be saved? We need to be saved to avoid having to face God's anger and judgment due to our sinfulness. And Paul affirms that Jesus died for all mankind and that the gospel is for everyone who believes, be they Jew or Gentile. In 2 Corinthians 5.15 we read, and I quote, and he, meaning Jesus, died for all. He died for all. That's what the all means. And then back in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew then for the Gentile and in Romans 10 13 he says and I quote for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved now there's something mind-blowing there there's no difference between Jew and Gentile the Jews are going to have a hard time coming to terms with that because they thought there was an incredible gulf between Jews and Gentiles. But Paul is saying, no, not under the new covenant there's not. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And it's, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Interestingly, he's quoting from Joel, prophet Joel, chapter 2 and verse 32. So that's always been God's intention that everyone, the whole world, uh, should be uh, saved. And then in Acts 13, we read, 13, 38 to 39, and I quote, Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Okay, so Paul is tub-thumping this a bit, isn't he? But it's so important, it's for all, it's for everyone. Not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles. It is for all. And in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, we see that everything necessary has been done to provide for our salvation. But we need to respond to God's love, grace and mercy, which Paul urges us to do without delay. And there he writes, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, and I quote, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Now, it's here now. and We need to respond to it. We need to accept it. Otherwise, we remain under God's wrath and under God's judgment. So, that's what I believe Paul would say to us, looking at his letters, in answer to the question, why do I need to be saved? So let's move on to the second question, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, if you remember the incident we looked at back in study two, <clears throat> when Paul and Silas were in the jail at Philippi, and you remember all the circumstances there, this was the very question that the Philippian jailer asked Paul. What must I do to be saved? What was Paul's reply? We can see it in Acts 16.31. And his reply was simply this, and I'm quoting, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what we must do to be saved. Writing to the Romans about a year after this incident, Paul explains that believing means accepting that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and is risen from the dead. So he writes in Romans 10 and verse 9, and I quote, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart. Jesus is Lord. And in previous studies, you remember how I've mentioned the fact that that became a, actually a literal matter of life and death for the early Christians. Were they going to say Jesus is Lord or were they going to say the emperor is Lord? It also means accepting Christ as saviour and having the faith to believe that his sacrifice on the cross cleanses us from sin and enables us to be at one with God. And we mentioned this in our in previous studies, study five. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And Paul further explains that there is nothing that we can do to earn or deserve our salvation. It is an astonishing gift of grace from God to us. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, those well-known words which I quote, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. So faith comes into it. But it isn't enough, says Paul, to believe and have faith. That's part of it. But there's more. There's another requirement for salvation. And that requirement is a word we've already mentioned this evening. And that word is repentance repentance is necessary in Acts 20 verse 21 and 26 verse 20 he says and I quote I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repent in repentance and prove in other words demonstrate their repentance how by their deeds I remember John the Baptist was pretty strong on this line and here's Paul saying you have to repent and not only do you repent you prove your repentance by what you do in your daily life 
your lifestyle will show whether or not your repentance is genuine. You can't tell from a person can just say, oh, I believe and I have faith, and you can't see whether that's true or not. But what you can see is whether they've repented or not. That's why they all go together. It's an important part of being saved is repentance. So, in summary, in order to be saved, we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose from the dead and is now Lord of all. Secondly, we must put our faith and trust in Jesus as the only one who can save us from our sins and restore us to a right relationship with God. And thirdly, we must repent of our sins and live our lives in obedience to his commands and teachings. That's what we must do to be saved. Which brings us to our third question, which is the bulk of the study this evening. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Well, I'm suggesting it means seven things. There's probably more than this, but I'm suggesting these seven. First of all, it means being a new creation. Being a new creation. Paul tells us that being saved through faith in Christ means we are born spiritually. We are born spiritually. What Jesus calls being born again, having already been born physically. We go back to John chapter 3 verses 5 to 7 to see that. Paul describes it as being created anew, as being created anew. And he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I quote, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In other words, our old sinful style of living with its worldly priorities, is now a thing of the past. We're now living a new life. A new life with heavenly priorities and a godly lifestyle. So being saved means we are new creations in Christ. And once again, that is going to show by the way we live our lives. Writing to the Galatians, Paul emphasises that when it comes to being saved, our background, status, race, gender, profession, or any other identifying feature such as circumcision doesn't matter at all. None of that matters. And he writes here in Galatians 6.15 and also chapter 5 verse 6 and I quote neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything what counts is a new creation what counts is a new creation and if you look in verse 11 of Galatians 6 this is this is lovely uh, for me it just makes 
warms my heart and makes me smile. And he says, he emphasises it by writing in what he describes large letters. He writes about this new creation in large letters. It seems that he must have seized the pen from his scribe and wrote it himself. That's why the letters are larger and probably a little bit all over the place. Because he's so determined to get this message across. That what we are by birth doesn't matter. What we are by Christ is what matters. We're new creations. What counts is a new creation. I can just imagine him writing it across the page in great big letters. And it goes on in Galatians 3, 26 and 28 where he writes these familiar words. And I quote, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, remember the context of the times, male nor female. Gender has nothing to do with it. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this radical teaching, it's hard for us sometimes to remember or to grasp how radical this teaching was. This teaching that everyone was equal in God's sight. And it meant that everyone was to be welcomed into the community of God's saved people, which was the church. And when we get round to the church in studies 10 and 11, this will crop up big time. But just for now, this is what he's saying. Everyone is equal in God's sight. I mean, we have, I suppose we could look around our society and say that there are social divisions in our society today. But nothing like there was in those days. Nothing like it. And this is why Paul is emphasising this fact. That it doesn't matter how you've been, what station in life you were born into, what you were, it doesn't matter. Right? God died for you, he loves you, and you are all equal in God's sight. Being saved means that the Holy Spirit now lives within us and will daily help us to become more like Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, and I quote, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? That's just mind-blowing, isn't it? That's just amazing. The Holy Spirit of God lives in me. It's like I'm a temple in which he dwells. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, quote, And we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that helps us to be a new creation. So what does it mean to be saved? It means being a new creation. Nothing else, and that's what counts. Nothing else matters. Secondly, what does it mean to be saved? It means being justified and made righteous. Being justified and made righteous. 
And it's at this point that many people switch off and think, I can't do with these words like justified and being made righteous. Don't worry, it's not hard. Paul tells us that being saved means that we are justified or made righteous in the sight of a righteous God. Now, Paul speaks about God's righteousness on several occasions, particularly in his letter to the Romans. And in Romans 3, 21 to 22, we read, and I quote, But now a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And he talks about that also in Romans 1.17 and 10 verse 3 and Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Now, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God that Paul talks about there encapsulates the whole plan of salvation. The righteousness of God encapsulates, if I can say it, the whole plan of salvation, including being justified, redeemed, reconciled and forgiven, having our relationship with God restored and being at one with him through the at-one-ment, the atonement, having the Holy Spirit living within us to change us into Christ's likeness and to empower us to live a life that is pleasing to God, and finally being vindicated on the day of judgment and brought into God's holy presence forever. And that is all down to the righteousness of God. You see, the only reason we can be made right in God's sight is because Jesus bore the wrath of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God and took the punishment for our sins upon himself when he died on the cross. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read, and I quote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? We might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. You see, by becoming sin for us, Jesus satisfied God's requirement of there being punishment for sin. As he writes to the Romans, chapter 3, 25 to 26, quote, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. There had to be punishment for sin. And Jesus became, that took that punishment upon himself, I go on with the quote, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there ha- his wrath had to be appeased, there had to be a sacrifice for sin, it was God's requirement, Jesus provided that. Jesus satisfied that requirement by his sacrifice of atonement. He met God's just requirements. Now, Paul frequently speaks about being justified or justification. But what does he mean by this? 
Well, the Greek word that Paul uses is dikaiou, which means to acquit. That's what it means. The Greek word means, translated justifying, means to acquit of a crime. Or it means to declare righteous. That's the key phrase, to declare righteous. In other words, to declare the guilty person pardoned rather than condemned. To declare the guilty person pardoned rather than condemned. Only the judge can justify. Only the judge can pronounce the guilty one righteous. He doesn't have to do it. It's not something that is deserved or merited in any way by the guilty person. It's a pure act of grace on the part of the judge. And this is exactly what God, the righteous judge of all, has done for us. And therefore we stand, in the words of Romans 3.24, quote, justified freely by his grace. He is the judge, he's the only one who can declare us righteous and he does it through his grace. He doesn't have to, but he does it through his grace going on, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So it's not just simply, I suppose you could say, an act of grace in that way. Something had to happen to bring about that act of grace and that was Christ's sacrifice as our Redeemer, which we, again, we saw in study five. So God, the Holy Judge, acquits us of our sins and he declares us to be righteous in his sight because Jesus paid the price of our unrighteousness. So God looks at Jesus on the cross and pardons us. So there's no need to fear God's judgment anymore. His judgment is that I am justified because of Jesus. Being saved means it's just as if I'd never sinned. It's just as if I'd never sinned. He's declared me righteous. And Paul tells us that justification takes place when we accept Jesus Christ by faith. Galatians 2.16 says, and I quote, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. So by faith, what we do is we take upon ourselves the righteousness of Christ. And that is why we're justified before God. When we come and ask for his cleansing and his forgiveness, it's like we're taking upon him ourselves his righteousness, not ours. It's nothing to do with any righteousness of our own. And there's that wonderful picture of robes that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 61 verse 10 and Isaiah 64 verse 6, which illustrate this beautifully, I always think, where he writes, and I quote, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation 
and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So God gives us, if you like, when we come to him in faith and he cleanses us, he gives us a robe of righteousness, of his righteousness that we can wear. That picture is just a wonderful picture to hold on to that we've been clothed in God's righteousness because of what Jesus did. Now here's a very interesting thing. In one of Jesus' parables that I rarely hear preached about, Jesus himself picks up this illustration of the robe in this what I consider to be a very significant parable and it's the parable of the wedding banquet. You'll find it in Matthew 22, 1-14. to The parable of the wedding bank, bank, banquet. <laughs> Say it. And what happens in the story is that Jesus finds a guest sitting there at his table the king, I should say, finds a guest sitting at his table who is not wearing wedding clothes. He's not wearing wedding clothes. And what does the king do? Have a little chat with him? Absolutely not. He has him thrown out. That's how important it is that he should be wearing wedding clothes. You see, that man was trusting in his own filthy rags rather than in the robe of righteousness which only the king can bestow. This act of justification is something which God the judge pronounces upon us, that we are justified. It's not like conversion and it's not like sanctification. You see, conversion and sanctification are both something that take place within us, here on earth. Whereas justification takes place outside of us, in the courtroom of heaven, which is where we're judged. It's there that we're justified, in heaven, in the courtroom of heaven. And Paul reveals that there are two aspects to justification. Number one, it means being pardoned and knowing the peace which comes from being reconciled to God. In study five we talked about Christ being our reconciler. The Greek word for peace is irene. And irene actually means the feeling of relief and rest that comes after a fractured limb has been reset. So if you've ever had a fractured limb, I have, elbow and leg, both fractured, when I was in my impetuous youth playing these silly games with balls. The relief, when it's out of joint, oh, the pain. But when you get it reset, there's just that feeling of relief, that feeling of rest. And that's the picture here. Paul talks about irene, the Greek word for peace. Our relationship with God has been fractured by the sin in our lives. But when we come to Christ and we are saved, we accept him as our saviour, then that relationship has been restored and reset 
We're no longer out of joint, if you like, with God. A new relationship now exists between God and us and we're at one with him and at peace with him. So that's the first aspect to justification. It's being pardoned and knowing the peace which comes from being reconciled to God. And secondly, it means being accepted by God and adopted into his family. So being saved means that we are heirs of God and wonderfully that inheritance includes the promise of eternal life. So we read in Titus 3, 7, quote, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And just a quick reminder that when Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't mean hope in the sense that the world means it or we might often use it. I hope that that might happen. There's a doubt sometimes when we say hope. But with Paul, it's a hope. It's a certain and sure hope. It's definitely going to happen. That's how he uses the word right throughout his writings. And in Romans 5, 1 to 2, Paul talks about both these aspects. This is where the irony comes in, in Paul's writings. And I quote from Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, it's just as if I'd never sinned, I've been given my robe of righteousness, I stand before God, Going on, we have peace with God. In other words, the joint that was out has been reset. Our relationship has been restored. So let's just read it without me commenting. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is key for eternal life. Being saved means that we have the assurance of eternal life. Now, as I've just mentioned, the third thing that it means to be saved is that we're adopted into God's family. Let's consider this in a little bit more detail, what this means. In using adoption as a picture of what it means to be saved, Paul describes all believers, both male and female, as being sons. And in Galatians 3.26 and Galatians 4 verse 5, we read this, and I quote, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ, who came to redeem us so that, Quote, we might receive the full rights of sons, which can also be translated, and I quote, we might receive adoption to sonship. And in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 of Galatians, <clears throat> Paul goes on to explain that, and I quote, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, meaning a slave to sin, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. End of quote. Now, 
It's important to understand the background and context of these verses. It is very, very significant. You see, in Roman culture, when Paul was writing, the adopted son lost all his rights in his old family, but gained all the rights of a legitimate child in his new family. Excuse me. I'll say that again. In Roman culture, the adopted son lost all his rights in his old family, but gained all the rights of a legitimate child in his new family. He became a full heir to his new father's estate. <clears throat> the word adoption means being placed as an adult son. That's what it means in the Greek. The word adoption means being placed as an adult son. So you see, as soon as we're saved, we're born into God's family and given the position of an adult son in an intimate relationship with our Father God. Did you notice the word Abba in the verse that we read above there in verse 6? An intimate relationship, a daddy relationship. And you also see this in Romans 8.15. Now as a son... We have both privileges and responsibilities. Among our privileges are those of being led, prompted, inspired, filled and empowered by the Spirit. They're the privileges. On the other hand, we're responsible for living lives that are pleasing to God and showing the fruit of the Spirit, which are evidence that he is indeed living in us. That everything we say and do reflects on the family of God that we now belong to. Paul tells us here that we're not like slaves because slaves lived in fear of what was going to happen to them next. They had no security whatever. The next day they could be thrown out of the household. No security whatever. There's no fear of what's going to happen to us. You see, being saved means that we are sons living in the security of God's love and acceptance. And you'll see that in Romans 8, 15 to 16, and there'll be more of that in our next study, in study 7. Now let's get this very clear. By saying we are all sons, Paul is not being disrespectful to women. He's just not. He is not being disrespectful to women. Rather, the opposite. He is being inclusive. He is being inclusive. You see, in Paul's day, adopted daughters had no rights and no inheritance in their new family. Only the son was given the rights and the inheritance. So Paul says that we are all sons both men and women, as a symbol of the fact that, not that we have to change gender, but as a symbol of the fact that each one of us, irrespective of gender, is a child of God with heavenly inheritance rights. So to insist on saying daughter instead of son completely misses the point. And on this I would like to congratulate Eleanor Henrietta Hull 
Because Eleanor obviously realised this. And you're thinking, who on earth is Eleanor Henrietta Hull? I'll tell you something. Know that hymn, Be Thou My Vision? She wrote the words. And do you know what some of those words say? I'll tell you. And every time I sing them, it makes my heart glad because I think, Eleanor, you got it in one. Because she writes, Thou my great father, and I thy true son. It is there, honestly. Look at it, next time you sing it, you think about it. Thou my great father, and I thy true son. She got it. You got it. It was nothing to do with gender. It was to do with status. To do with our standing before God. We're all, be we male or female, we're all sons in the sense of having that inheritance of eternal life. So Paul says in Romans 8.17 that we are co-heirs with Christ. This means that everything actually belongs to Jesus. But by his grace we share in what is his, just as we share in his sufferings. So we can expect difficulties to arise as we stand for Jesus, but we can also expect to receive glorious heavenly blessings from God our Father. Let's move then on to the fourth thing that it means to be saved. It means that we are under grace, not under law. We are under grace, not under law. Paul's at pains to point out that being saved doesn't mean that we now have to follow the law of Moses. Now, Gentiles who converted to Judaism did have to obey the law of Moses. But this is not Gentiles converting to Judaism. This is Gentiles becoming followers of Christ. And when we become followers of Christ, it doesn't mean to say that we have to follow the law of Moses. Our salvation is a gift of grace from God. It's not something that can be earned by following a code of law. Now, you'll find in the epistle to the Galatians that Paul seems to be strongly against the law in Galatians. No doubt because he was exercised by the fact that the Judaizers were telling all the Galatian churches that they had to obey it to be saved. If you cast your mind back to to study one, that's why he wrote Galatians, which if you also remember was the first of all the letters that he wrote to combat this. But when he comes to write to the Romans, which is about nine years after he wrote the letter to the Galatians, we see that Paul actually, in Romans, adopts a a gentler stance. Uh, He recognises that the law did have a part to play in God's plan of salvation, despite its shortcomings. So here I'm attempting to give a summary of what Paul says in Romans about this. He points out that the law showed what God required of his people, including what was right and what was wrong. But the law only brought judgment and death because they rebelled against God, which is actually what to sin means, and they disobeyed his law, which of course a holy God can't ignore. And since the law was part of God's covenant with Israel, 
it meant that the blessings which emanated from it were only for the Israelites. However, this was a temporary situation because God's original plan given through Abraham was for all nations to experience his blessings and salvation. God had chosen the Israelites to show his glory to the other nations through living in a covenant relationship with him. But this didn't work out. It would only be through the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who would fulfill all the demands of the law and the teachings of the prophets, that God's salvation would be brought to the world and a new covenant established. And though all those who believe are therefore counted as, and I quote, children of Abraham. See that phrase in Galatians 3, 7. You'll also see in Romans 9, 8 and Galatians 4, 28. Now, if you'd like to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at verses 7 to 18. And in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18... Paul shows how this new covenant is far more glorious than the old covenant. Whereas the old brought death and condemnation, the new brings life and righteousness. And you'll see that in verse 7 and verse 9. Moving on to verse 11, we see that whereas the old covenant was for a time for a place and for a people, the new covenant is for all time, for all places and for all people. Moving down to verses 12 to 18, we see that being saved and living under the new covenant means several things. First of all, verse 12, it means that we can come boldly into God's presence without fear. Verse 13, it means we are able to gaze upon his glory and worship him. Verse 16, it means we have a new mind and a new heart, a mind that knows God and a heart that loves God. Verse 17, it means that we have freedom from sin which gives us the freedom to approach God in praise and prayer. In verse 18, being saved means that we are being transformed into being like Christ, which means that a divine supernatural process is at work within us, changing us back into his image in which we were originally created. So that's 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18, comparing the old and new covenant. Back to the law for a moment. The law can condemn us for our sinfulness, but it is powerless. It's powerless to help us in our sinfulness. Only Jesus can help us in our sinfulness. So in Galatians 2, 21, Paul writes... I do not set aside the grace of God. 
For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But what the law couldn't do, God graciously did by sending his Son so that both Jews and Gentiles could be made righteous in his sight through faith in Christ. And in Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul tells us that by dying with Christ, we have died to sin. And particularly with Jewish Christians in mind, I'm sure, we have died to the law. So we've died to sin and we have been raised to new life in Christ. So Romans 7 verse 4 says this, and I quote, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God. And verse 6, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way, old way of the written code. And of course, by written code, he means the law. And in other letters, Paul writes, just emphasising this fact, we've been raised to new life, we've been released from law and raised to new life. Galatians 3.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And Colossians 1.27, he talks about Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, being saved means being under grace and not under law. The fifth thing it means is this. It means being sealed. It means being sealed. Paul tells us that being saved means being sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you'd like to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, there's a couple of verses there, very significant, 13 and 14. So Ephesians 1, looking at 13 and 14. Starting in fact with the second part of verse 13, which reads, and I quote, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, in those days, a seal spoke of four particular things. The first thing it spoke of was ownership. Ownership. So, having believed, as Paul says there in verse 13, we now belong to God. He owns us, if you like. We are his possession is actually the word he uses in verse 14. And this sealing takes place at salvation. The second thing a seal spoke of was safety and security. We've come across the word security already in this study, haven't we? It's very important. You see, if an item had been sealed, it was deemed to be no longer for sale. 
It was sealed. It was no longer for sale. The seal protected them. It protected them even from being removed. God ensures our safety by the presence in our lives of the seal. In other words, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's marker that he's put his hand on our lives. He is God's marker. He is God's message. He is God's warning, if you like, saying, hands off. Don't touch them. If you do, you will answer to me. I've sealed them. So you see, our security is in God no matter what happens. That's the second thing the seal speaks about. Safety and security. The third thing it speaks about is a completed transaction. A completed transaction. You see, the moment the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, the process of salvation has not only begun, but in a sense is also concluded. His presence guarantees that the process of our salvation, in other words, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved, that process that goes on through our lives can't be stopped. That's what the seal means. It's a completed transaction, it's a done deal. We are sealed, our salvation, the process of it is sealed. It's begun and it's concluded, although we're still on the journey towards that conclusion. And fourthly, the seal speaks of the value of the package to the owner. That this package is valuable. That's what the seal on it says. You see, ordinary objects were not sealed. Just run-of-the-mill stuff was not sealed. And they could be easily replaced. But items that were sealed were marked. They were marked as being special. And you see what this means for us? It means that we are so valuable and special to God that he sealed us with his spirit. And I just think those are four wonderful things to help us to understand what it means to be saved. It means I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit with all the dimensions, all the layers that come with that. Now, Paul goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit living in us is God's down payment or God's deposit to guarantee to us that he will finish his work in us and will eventually bring us to glory. So in verse 14 there, we read, and I quote, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here is arabon. And arabon means a deposit. It means a guarantee. It means a down payment. In Paul's day, it meant the down payment to guarantee the final purchase of some commodity or a piece of property. That's what the down payment meant. It was a guarantee that you were going to go on and purchase it. So Paul's pointing out that our heavenly future is secure. 
It's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit himself. He is God's down payment that he's going to finish the work that he's begun in us and he's going to bring us to glory. That is guaranteed by he, him. So, being sealed. Number six, being saved means being changed. For Paul, being saved is a process, as I've just described, rather than something that just happens when we repent and accept Christ as our saviour. It's about us being changed day by day as his saving power impacts our lives and we allow him to work in us. And Paul exhorts the Philippians with these words in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Quote, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we're being changed day by day. Our salvation is being worked out as he works in us. And part of this process is the renewing of our minds so that they become in tune with what God wants and with what God values rather than being influenced by the world around us. So we know those familiar words in Romans 12 too. Quote, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, he writes, quote, Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. So what God wants and what God values, that's how our minds are to be renewed and shaped and transformed. God, by his Spirit, works daily to change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And Paul encourages us to renounce the values of the world and embrace the values of the cross. In other words, to die daily to the sinful ways of the world, choosing instead to live holy lives in service to God as Paul himself had done. Galatians 6.14, he writes, quote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It means being changed. And finally, the seventh point is being saved means being chosen and predestined. Now, there are two main passages in Paul's letters where he speaks about those who are saved being chosen and predestined. The first is Romans 8, 29 to 30, where we read, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified those he justified, he also glorified. And Ephesians 1, 4-5, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, you don't need me to tell you that these teachings have caused a great deal of controversy among Christians, raising such questions as, how can God choose some to be saved and not others? And how can God override our free will to choose whether to respond to Jesus or not by taking the decision out of our hands and making it himself? Books have been written on this, folks, I have to tell you. You're not going to get a book from me. You're just going to get a very simple response. Just to say that some people would maintain that God is sovereign and that before the world began, he did indeed choose those known as the elect who would receive salvation according to his will and purposes. This is a mystery. And just because we can't understand it or because we object to it doesn't make it untenable or untrue. Others would say that what these verses mean is that God, who is omniscient, knew before the foundation of the world who would be saved and who wouldn't. And God ordained beforehand or predetermined, which is the meaning actually of predestined, it's predetermined, that one day these people would be like his son, both in characteristics and in status, being adopted into his family as sons and heirs and therefore ready to receive spiritual blessings from God in their lives. And those who responded by faith to his call to salvation would be cleansed from their sin. In other words, they would be justified, as we read there in Romans 8.30, with the certainty of one day becoming like Christ, which is what he means by the word glorified, which is there in Romans 8.30. Those he justified, he also glorified. When Paul says that God, quote, chose us in him, that's in Christ, in Ephesians 1.4, he's stressing the fact that salvation is wholly dependent upon, quote, the incomparable riches of his grace, Ephesians 2.7, and it's totally undeserved. Now, something important to notice here throughout Scripture that whenever we're chosen by God for anything, or people are chosen, it is so that he can accomplish something in us and through us. And here being chosen by God speaks about we're being chosen to live a holy, blameless life. Paul also speaks of us as being saved for a purpose. And we read about that in Ephesians 2.10. And that purpose is namely, quote, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there's another aspect to remember when considering this thing about predestination, predetermination. It's this. We should also see this matter of being chosen in the context, here's that word again, the context of being a part of the Christian church, a part of the new Israel. You see, the old Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, were a people chosen by God for a purpose, to bring his salvation to the world. It didn't work, as we saw earlier. 
they've now been superseded by the Christian church whom God has chosen, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, 4, chosen in Christ. Okay, so here's the body of believers chosen in Christ to be the new Israel to accomplish that task of taking the message of his salvation to the world. So being saved means that we are members of this church and that we must play our part in bringing others to Christ. 